Welcome back and good morning. We are continuing on today in The Curious Barista's Guide to Coffee, written by Tristan Stevenson in the middle of page 13. Coffee was the great sober in a time where breakfast consisted of a small beer and when two pennies would get you extremely drunk. It was the antidote to alcohol's generally debilitating effects, including the numbing of the senses and propensity to lead to toxic daytime brawls. This Turkish drink stimulated the mind, provoked discussion, ritualized debate, and encouraged rational inquiry on all manner of topics between like-minded people. As one anonymous English poem from 1674 put it, coffee was that grave and wholesome liquor that heals the stomach, makes the genius quicker, relieves the memory, revives the sad, and cheers the spirits without making mad. Seats could not be reserved in a coffee house. There were no class prejudices, and besides women, no one would be refused entrance. Here, merchants, politicians, lobbyists, intellectuals, scientists, journalists, scholars, poets, and common men alike all took seats, sometimes to discuss business, but most of the time simply to enjoy a coffee and partake in the discourse and debate of their chosen subject, all to the rattling noise of kettle, skimmers, and ladies among the braziers. Oops, that says ladles, not ladies. John Starkey's A Character of Coffee and Coffee Houses, 1661, eloquently summarizes the situation. Here is no respect of persons. Boldly, therefore, let any person who comes to drink coffee sit down in the very chair, for here a seat is to be given to no man. That great privilege of equality is only peculiar to the golden age and to a coffee house. Coffee houses were ideal places to chew the political fat too, which could and probably did include talk of dissent and treason. Charles II, 1660-85, of England, placed spies in London's coffee shops, then attempted to ban the establishments altogether, claiming in proclamation issued on 29 December 1675 that they caused men to misspend much of their time, which might and probably would otherwise by employed in and about their lawful callings and affairs. The bill was never passed, however, thanks to appeals from coffee men and politicians alike. By the end of the 17th century, some London coffee shops had started to become referred to as penny universities. They became a breeding ground for new ways of scientific thinking, an incubator for hypotheses and theories, and sometimes even a staging ground for what were termed natural philosophy, demonstrations, and experiments. Since many of these British coffee houses specialized in specific fields of business, news, arts, discussion, or learning, it was shops such as the Grecian, Marine, and Garraways that the likes of Christopher Wren, the architect of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, and the English scientist Robert Hooke would visit. The Marine also became the stage for James Hodgson, one of London's earliest celebrity scientists. Isaac Newton's eponymous work, Principia, in which he shared his gravity theory for the first time, was published in 1687, and some would say had more to do with his local Cambridge coffee house than it did with fallen apples. The Scottish academic Adam Smith wrote a large part of what is perhaps the most important piece of literature concerning economics and finance of any time, The Wealth of Nations, in the British Coffee Shop in London. Coffee houses like the British Coffee Shop functioned as common room, 
in which to discuss the topics of trade and commerce, where a network of runners could rapidly disseminate stock-sensitive news from the colonies among all the relevant coffee shops. Jonathan's Coffee Shop was one such coffee hangout that became a popular alternative trading post to the Royal Exchange when strict protocols were enforced by the Crown. Almost 100 years later, in 1773, a group of traders broke away and established a new coffee shop called New Jonathan's. That name lasted only a short time, however, and it became known as the Stock Exchange, now known as the London Stock Exchange. One of the world's largest insurance brokers, Lloyd's of London, also started life as a coffee shop, and even today the porters who work there are referred to as waiters. Well-known publications such as The Spectator, The Guardian, and Tattler were either directly birthed from or heavily influenced by the coffee shop too. News and commentary that would previously have only been the preserve of the higher social ranks was suddenly available to the masses. Tattler, when it first launched in 1709, even had section headers named after prominent London coffee shops. And what of the coffee itself? Not so good, it seems. In his 1661 book, A Character of Coffee and Coffee Houses, John Starkey colorfully describes the drinks he received with such phrases as boiled soot, made with the scent of old crusts, and I have seen other references to horse pond liquor and hot hell broth. Most coffee houses roasted their own, of course, and given the above descriptions, it is fair to say they may have been on the darker side, but it's unlike, but it's likely that questionable brewing methods, adopted from Ottoman practices, where coffee is repeatedly boiled, is the cause for the strongly brewed and bitter brews that most shops served. Some of the 17th century recipes even recommended using water that has been previously boiled for 15 minutes with old coffee grounds to season it. The appearance of the drink perhaps took greater precedence over its flavor and some shop owners experim experimented with elaborate filtration techniques using egg whites and isinglass, a substance extracted from the swim bladders of fish, in an attempt to clarify their brews and remove some of the sludge. It was also commonplace to brew all the coffee in the morning then reheat it to order throughout the day, which is another practice that would have done no favor for the flavor. Paris' first coffee house opened in 1672, 20 years after London, with some sources even suggesting that our old friend Pasqua Rosé was involved in its conception. Virtually all traces of its existence appear to have been lost to time, unfortunately. This contrasts with Café Procope, which was established in 1686 and became a famous meeting place of the French Enlightenment, Rousseau, Diderot, and Voltaire frequented it. Indeed, Voltaire, who was rumored to have consumed 40 cups of coffee a day, arguably conceived his encyclopedie, the, first, the world's first modern encyclopedia, at Café Procope. Two of America's founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin, were also known to meet at Café Procope, which still exists today, incidentally. A photo above the writing states, Coffee became a revolutionary drink in 1789 when Camille Desmoulins leaped onto a table at Café de Foy in Paris to exhort his comrades to arms. Another popular Parisian coffee house, Café de Foy, 
was the stage for the rallying cry that started the French Revolution. Under the watchful eyes of police spies, while standing on a table brandishing a pistol, Camille Desmoulins roused his countrymen with his historic appeal, Our Arms Citoyens, on 12th July 1789. The Bastille fell two days later, and the French Revolution had begun. Although it was irrefutably London that was hit hardest by the coffeehouse bug, most European cities had at least one coffeehouse by the close of the 1670s, and the first American shop was opened in Boston in 1671. New York had to wait another 25 years to get its first, which was opened by a British immigrant on South Broadway. We'll continue reading next morning at the top of page 16 in the section, The Drink of the New World. Thank you for listening and have a great day.